0: Well, good morning, Grace, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, it's, it's uh, again, my privilege to be with you in this way today. Uh, I always count it a privilege. But uh, actually, the, between the music and Val's testimony, I, I had half a mind to just pronounce a benediction and dismiss you all. <laughs> not going to do that, though. You're not going to get off that easy. Um, we really do need to start making some progress through this book of James, which is a great book. I love James. And... Uh, it may be providential, actually, that I'm a um, uh, lead-off batter for this series because it was actually supposed to be George Hornicle, but he's away this week, so we swapped weeks. And, uh, and so now I get to, uh, to discuss with you this topic of tests, trials. And uh, the last couple of times I've been here uh, giving the sermon, I was talking about my personal uh, trial that I was going through, and so, so this kind of feeds right into it, and we'll, we'll observe some additional things from James in that way. I, I hope you were listening to the music, really, because uh, when you were singing that, uh, a lot of that stuff applies directly to what we're going to be talking about today, and it, it fits very nicely. Courtney, well done picking whatever those songs were. Um, to be honest, I, there was a time I couldn't have sung some of that. Um, the, the line... Um, when, I'll sing for joy when my heart is heavy. I, I wasn't singing for joy too much at times. And that whole, that whole hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, well, it wasn't well with my soul at points. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't understand what I'm talking about, uh, most of you do, but uh, back in May of 21, uh, we lost our eldest son, John, in a, in a terrible uh, vehicle accident. And uh, it, it was just truly devastating. I, I, uh, I've cried more in the 20 months since then than the whole rest of my life put together. It's not even close. Um, so, so there were some very challenging times for me, and still, even now. right? But we're going to look at what James has to say about all this, but before we even get to that, which is the main part of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the sermon today, I wanted to at least in this lead off role, talk about James a little bit. I'll uh, give you a little introduction because we, we tend to gloss right over the salutation, but, but that's a critical piece to understand what's going on here. It's James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, he says. Um, James, according to most people, um, is pretty well accepted that this James is the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he became a key leader, if not the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But notice what he he says, he doesn't talk about any of that. He just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I find his humility really striking uh, don't you? Uh, so, okay, um, jumping in now to the, the bulk of the, of the teaching today. We start right off, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the first few verses, honestly, because that's, that's where the core of the thought is, and then there's some additional things as we work through uh, the remainder of chapter 1. But James starts off, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, it's not always easy to experience joy, Um, and and I'll admit, I'm struggling with that myself, Uh, because the pain is very real, and it can be really intense. So with that, though, I offer you observation number one. Uh, If we don't experience joy in the midst of our trials, it's because we do not fully appreciate the benefits that are accruing to our account. at some level, you can understand how this works, though, because the advertised benefits are kind of ethereal, they're kind of far off, it seems. Whereas the pain, that's existential. That's like in your face right now. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's hard to think of future goodness when the present pain is so overwhelming that I can hardly think at all, right? So, but trials really are a source of joy because God is using trials to refine our character and to sanctify us. Look at what James says here. The reason that trials are, we should count it as all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to take a look at this word that's perfect here, perfect. it's the same. There's the same root word as when Jesus declared on the cross, "It is finished." He said, "Tetelestai." It is finished. That's in John 19 verse 30. The NIV actually, I think, might be a better translation of that word here. It says "mature." See, because it has this this idea of a process that has run to completion, of being of full age. Uh, Paul used a similar term in 2 Timothy ver, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That, that idea of having finished the journey. okay. And he, and he goes on to say, uh, from Paul in uh, Romans 5, this is a similar teaching to what James is telling us. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, character produces hope. The word character here is very interesting because it's got the same root as the word testing back in James 1 verse 3. And so this idea of character and testing seem to be kind of inextricably linked in the Greek language and the Greek mind. Testing produces proven character. Proven character is the natural result of testing. So, observation number two is that both James and Paul describe a process. It doesn't just immediately happen. It's not instant. It's not even usually very quick. Uh, my brother Jim, he's uh, the lead teaching pastor at Reston Bible uh, Church in uh, Northern Virginia. He, he observed that it's, it's nearly universal for Christians to feel that this transformation process, this character development process, should be further along. It takes longer than we expect. And the sense of a long duration can be had just from the words that, are, that we see in this, in this passage. Uh, when James 1.3 says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word steadfastness, it's the same word uh, in Romans 5.3, translated endurance. If you look at the New American Standard, it uses endurance in James and perseverance in Romans, King James uses patience in both places. So there's this sense of a, of a patient enduring, uh, which almost assumes a, a long time frame. Um, oh, hold on. Before I go to, to uh, observation three, back on, on two, uh, There's another thing I want you to realize, and and this has been very evident to me, is that this process is not without some apparent regression, maybe, at times. I I was somewhat surprised and actually kind of dismayed, frankly, that in my recent trials, uh, there were some sin patterns that I thought had been largely resolved. I thought I had dealt with those. And uh, in, in the middle of the duress, they kind of reared their ugly heads again. Uh, I know we have some educators here, any teachers, why do you use, why do you administer tests in your classroom? What? What's that? What you know? to, to see what the students know, to assess true, the true mastery of the subject matter. How much do they really know? Well, I can tell you from the trials, these tests have revealed to me That I'm not as far along the line as I thought I was. I am not as conformed to Christ as I thought. I am not as sanctified as I thought. So Peter takes a a different slant uh, on the same topic in in his first letter, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though so here Peter is looking at this refining business, at, at this testing, at this proving process of, our, of the trials. And it's the same trials. This word trials here in 1 Peter is the same as back in James. Okay, uh, now on to observation number three. The proper perspective that allows us to view our various trials with joy can be found in a couple of of, uh, of uh, passages from from Paul the first one is in first second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 where, where he says that God is using uh, this light momentary affliction to prepare us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison this is really important this idea of an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison this is crucial to having the right perspective first note that it is eternal Okay, eternal. Keep that in mind. E- eternality is going to be a big part of all of this, if you're going to get it right. Uh, second note that there's no ba- we have no basis for comparison in our experience for the extent of the coming glory. This is because God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or can even think, right, in Ephesians 3.20. I have a homework assignment for you. I can't get into the idea of the weight of glory. We don't have time today. But C.S. Lewis preached a sermon about it in 1942 in Oxford, England. I I say the student can go look that up. And he really develops the idea of this weight of glory. Uh, Very, very, I'll warn you, it's a little heavy. But hang with it. It's really good stuff, as is most of what Lewis writes. Okay, returning to Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, Paul tells you about his light momentary affliction. He he includes these things there. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Do the math. What did his back look like? 195 times the whip ripped through his flesh. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I I was adrift at sea. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This he called light momentary, Affliction. Okay, Paul further says in Romans 8.18, this is the other one that I want to look at, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can read it there. Okay, more homework. Sorry, I'm a tough teacher, I guess, huh? Take some time to meditate on and pray through Romans 8. Take an hour. All right, a half hour. Take some time. That is a tremendous passage of Scripture. Don't have time to get into all the details. But it is marvelous, the, the security, that, the, the assurance, the comfort that you can get from Romans chapter 8. Um, the, now, the point is to understand the sufferings of this present time. Any suffering that is contained to this short life, no matter how intense, cannot compare to the increased joy and glory that are added to our account forever. Jesus understood this in Hebrews 12 too. It says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And here's this word endure again. The same thing that we've been talking about in James. He endured the cross. Not that he wouldn't have preferred a plan B. You remember in previous message I talked to you about how it was for him in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he was going to be crucified. He knew what was coming. He was sweating drops of blood. It was so intense for him, right? And he prayed, Father, if there's a way that this cup can pass from me, Nevertheless, your will be done. F.F. F. Bruce wrote, It is not merely that the glory is a compensation for the sufferings. It actually grows out of the suffering. There is an organic relation between the two for the believer as surely as there was for his Lord. I was reading a book by a guy named Jerry Sitzer, S-I-T-T-S-E-R, it's called A Grace Disguised. Uh, This guy, Sitzer, he was driving the family van down a highway out west when a drunk driver crossed over into his lane and there was a horrific head-on. In an instant, he lost his mother, his wife, and a daughter. And he discusses how this concept of how suffering actually expands our capacity to experience, like experience everything, certainly to experience ultimate joy and glory of the Lord. It's as though our container were stretched so that God could pour more of that in eventually. Uh, the former lead pastor of my old church in Pennsylvania, Ron Schmidt, uh, he, he recently lost his eldest son to uh, medical problems. He had, he had battled them all his life. But, see, he recognizes that his son is better off now than ever. He, he, here's a saying. Uh, We're good because Nate is great. Right? He, he gets it. That's, that's the right attitude. Um, And Ron gave us a book by Randy Alcorn called 90 Days of God's Goodness. It's subtitled Daily Reflections That Shed Light on Personal Darkness. In it, Alcorn says, when Christ sets up his eternal kingdom, he will banish evil and suffering. Right? Amen. We sung about some of that this morning. Yet we will remember both in a way that won't cause us pain, but will prompt our gratitude and worship. I'm convinced that in heaven we'll remember evil and suffering in order to provide the backdrop to better see God's holiness and grace. Heaven's happiness won't be dependent on our ignorance of what happened on earth. It will be enhanced by our changed perspective on it. We'll remember the sufferings of the present in order to appreciate our eternal future. This is all part of God's best plan, though we might not appreciate it at the moment. I can tell you I haven't always appreciated it. I've told him so. God, I don't like your plan. I know, it's, I know it's best. I know intellectually it's best. I still don't like it. But note this, that God's best plan includes his own suffering at a depth like no other. More on this to come. Keep that thought in mind, though. Okay, uh, during last Sunday's service, I was caught up short by a line in one of the songs. Uh, it said, Break my heart for what breaks yours. And, and then, so like you all continued on with the rest of whatever, and I'm sitting there thinking, or standing there thinking, doing business with God. Is God, when I lost my son, it broke my heart, it ripped it like right out like all my guts, everything, just right out. But is God's heart broken over the early promotion of one of his saints to glory? That's actually kind of a cause of celebration, right? What breaks God's heart is those who are lost forever. I lost my son for a time. I expect to get him back when I see him in glory. But those who are lost forever, that breaks God's heart. And the flip side of the same coin is that it's not only that we're saved unto this eternal weight of glory, but we have to also appreciate that no matter how bad our suffering is now, our salvation means we never have to hear Those unspeakably dreadful words from Christ, I never knew you, depart from me. Or experience the terror of being banished to what he called the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a truly great relief, right? This is a cause for joy, no matter what's going on. Okay, uh, now from there we start exploring additional amplifying information from James about this business of trials, and he talks about wisdom for trials and where to find it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. By the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Uh, I used to think, like some commentators, that this was sort of a separate section of James, it was like just kind of tossed in there, disconnected from the rest. But more recently, like other commentators, I'm beginning to see that, no, this is connected. This is all part of the flow. Um, when when we're in the midst of the trial, it can be bewildering. We don't understand what's going on, as, as Dr. James Dobson has noted, it's not the pain that's the problem. It's finding the sense of purpose and meaning in the pain. So if you want to find purpose and, and meaning in your pain, seek God, the source of all wisdom, the one who freely offers wisdom to deal with any trial. As Matthew Henry uh, uh, observed, he said, God has it to give, and he is of a giving disposition. <laughs> Isn't that good? But it's imperative that you ask in faith, not doubting God's ability or willingness to meet your need, or else you'll be just tossed about like the waves of the ocean when the wind is blowing and the tempest is, is raging. Remember, people, our resurrection hope that Peter talks about is the anchor for our souls, Hebrews six nineteen. Uh, next, we get uh, to uh, in verses nine through eleven the trials of poverty and wealth. Again, another section that might seem disconnected, but I say it's all part of the same story. Um, the lowly brother let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Um, It's it's fairly obvious, I think, uh, to most of us that poverty can be trying, that that can be a real test. Being poor makes this life difficult, even just in meeting basic necessities, right? Still, though, the one of meager means should think of it as exaltation in God's economy because what did Jesus teach? Many who are last shall be first. The least among us is great. Okay. But riches can also present a test and some of you may be thinking, okay, go ahead, bring that test on. I want some of that test. But be careful what you wish. I've heard it said that for every person God can trust with wealth, he can trust a hundred with poverty. See, because material wealth tends to distract us from what's truly important from the eternal perspective, we tend to become worldly minded when we have a lot of this world's goods. We worry about our stuff, not about what God's about. Listen to the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, being rich in and of itself is morally neutral. The question is, for those blessed with material wealth, are you rich toward God? This is a major element of stewardship, the thing that we were just talking about all last month. Okay, observation number four then. Contentment is the key to enduring the trials of both poverty and wealth. Um, Look at Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A lot of people toss around verse 13. I can do all things like there's some kind of you know, super cosmic superhero something. But it's connected to this business of, of poverty and riches. Paul could deal with all of that because he was content whatever his situation See, it's never really about the money. Remember that Jesus told that parable about the rich fool to explain a statement he had just made that when he said, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Okay. Next we turn to the reward for steadfastness under trial where James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So it's the one who endures who receives the crown of life. Now this may refer to the abundant life now or to eternal life or in some sense both. Not sure, not going to get into all that argument. In any case, though, the life that Christ offers is only for those who continue the trust under trial. Those who fall away, by comparison, reveal that they were never really his. It's like the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, and the seed that fell on the rocky ground, the plant sprung up, but then withered quickly under the scorching sun. Next, next we uh, move on to verses 13 through 15, where James talks about a special form of trial, uh, which is temptation. And he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, The forms of of tempt, that word tempt in verses 13 and 14, they're from the same Greek word that was translated trial in verse 2. In fact, in in the King James, it reads temptations in verse 2 also. But typically, though, we would say a temptation is, is a test specifically in the form of an enticement to evil. Whereas we would call something a trial, more generally, uh, that's uh, some challenging circumstances of life in the fallen world. But you have, to be, you have to understand, it's important to know, because of God's perfect holiness, purity, and righteousness, there is nothing in him that finds a- a- alluring anything in sin. Uh, in fact, he finds all sin Utterly repulsive. Furthermore, it is completely inconsistent with his character that he would tempt anyone into sin. No no such thought even occurs to him to do such a thing. The true source of our temptation is within. Okay? When our desire, when our lusts, which is just a base desire, when the, the offspring of our lusts is sin which results in death, both spiritual and physical. Now, we look in comparison to the unchanging God, the source of every good gift. Do not be deceived, my, brother, my beloved brothers, for every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first-fruits of his creatures. That's verses six to eighteen. So come what may in life, we know this: that there's no fickleness or caprice with God. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Hebrews 13:8. The perfect goodness and love of God is using everything, including perhaps especially our trials for our ultimate good. Romans 8, 28, a very familiar verse to many of you. Uh, All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, quoting from uh, Alcorn, when Paul says for the good, he clearly implies final or ultimate good. Not good subjectively felt in the midst of our sufferings. As his wife Joy underwent cancer treatments, C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. <laughs> he has a way with words, doesn't he? But a warning to you, please. At the proper time, when taken in the context of the totality of chapter eight, Romans 8:28, 8, can be a great source of comfort. And it is for me now as I process all of that. But when you come across someone in the midst of a severe t- trial, do not tritely toss Romans 8.28 at them. It's not really helpful in the moment. They're not ready to receive it yet. Okay, be, be tactful, be, be, be reserved. Uh, understand, if, if you had said that to me 20 months ago, as my son lay dying in the hospital, that wouldn't have helped. It would have hurt as much as anything. So, so be, be judicious, please. Okay, observation number five. Every good gift includes foremost our salvation, which cost him, God, unimaginable suffering. Alcorn writes, when you think Jesus doesn't understand your pain, realize that you don't understand the extent of his. I've been traumatized by the loss of my son after a mere, not quite 35 years of imperfect sin marred relationship. It was awful, as awful as anything I've ever felt. When Jesus bore our sins on the cross, he was forsaken of the Father. Remember, he cried out, Mark 15, 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This caused the first ever break in a perfect, pure, intimate relationship that had existed from all eternity past. What did that feel like? Sure, the... the, the physical pain that Jesus endured was truly excruciating. On the cross, that's how we get the term excruciating, in fact. But the heartache of the broken relationship with the Father, unimaginable. Unimaginable. Far deeper suffering than any that we have endured. Again, returning to Alcorn, he says The beloved Son who had well pleased his Father became our sin. So the Father turned away. For the first time in all eternity, the oneness within the Godhead knew separation. In ways we cannot comprehend, ways that would amount to blasphemy had God not revealed it to us, the atonement somehow tore God apart. Alcorn also says some people can't believe God would create a world in which people would suffer so much Isn't it more remarkable that God would create a world in which no one would suffer more than he did? It's amazing as I was reading from Alcorn because the last few months I've been thinking these very same things God didn't have to do any of this. He didn't have to put up with any of us Somehow in his mind all of this creation, the, the eternal state of, of joy with us is worth putting himself through unimaginable suffering. That's his idea of, a, of the best plan. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me. It's remarkable. Okay, so some concluding thoughts now as we wrap this up from Hebrews 12, going back to Hebrews 12, the first two verses, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are encouraged to run with endurance. There's that same word again, endurance. Run with endurance, the sometimes difficult race that is marked out before us. We are told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, perfector that's the same word where it was talking in James about being perfect. The founder perfecter of our, our faith for inspiration. He endured the unimaginable suffering of the cross bearing all of our sin. Again, he endured the same word that we've been talking about the whole time. But he considered the co- cost worth paying because the suffering was temporary. Unimaginable. Deep, but temporary. The joy of bringing many brothers and sisters into glorious relationship with the Godhead is forever. And what a great thought there is, too. Somehow, we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. That is our destiny. That's crazy. That's that's hard to even imagine. But if you can start processing that, you can start feeling the joy of the lord whatever your circumstances and this is the essence of the gospel okay jesus endured the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we might be reconciled to god and we would spend eternity with him so right now if you've never done this before i encourage you to repent of your sin place your trust your faith in christ and his redemptive work on the cross so you too might have this hope of glory. Your eternal destiny uh, rests on it. Uh, okay, let's, let's close in prayer. And for the closing prayer, I am going to uh, take excerpts from the prayers in the devotional from Randy Alcorn again. Uh, let's pray. Lord, what an amazing revelation that you are at work in the worst of things. Please grant us that gospel-affirming, paradigm-shifting perspective that you are at work in our lives by your sovereign grace, not merely in what is obviously good, but in what seems at this moment irredeemably bad. Grant us the trust to rejoice in our afflictions as Paul did, who had the same indwelling Holy Spirit that you've given to us. Give us patience to wait and faith to trust that you have a redemptive and eternity-enhancing purpose in whatever happens in our lives. Amen.